Hey, Believing, it's so good to see you for week five of our series, Misfits. For the past several weeks, we've been talking about how we are misfits. We're called to be different than the norm that the culture puts on us and that we're meant to stand out. And when I first heard this title of our sermon series, Misfits, I thought about that Christmas movie, Rudolph, and I think it's called, well, I think the first one is just called Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and it's one of those like claymation type of situations. Um, and this is for my people who are all about Christmas in July. If you're a Christmas in July person, go ahead and put your favorite Christmas movie in the chat on our online platform but um so in Rudolph there is this place that's called the island of misfit toys and it is where all these toys go who they have something that's like not quite right about them um, they were made in a way that is different than what would be anticipated or they didn't have anybody who loved them so they ended up on this island of misfit toys um, and each of these toys had something that was like a little bit different about them. Like there was this train that had wheels that were like square so it didn't like roll, it kind of like, you know, chugged along like that. Um, there was a cowboy that had an ostrich that he rode instead of a horse. Um, there was a water gun that shot out jelly, so no one wanted that toy, so it ended up in the Island of Misfit Toys. Um, you know, and in the end, it all turns out fine. All the toys find their home and they're loved and it's all a happy ending. But in the movie, they sing this song and there is um, a few lyrics that go like this. We may be different from the rest. Who decides the test of what is really best? And thinking about those lyrics, I was like, that's just such a great question. Like who decides what's really best? And for us as misfits and as Christ followers, the world is not it for us. The world does not determine the test. It doesn't determine what is the best way for us to live. Um, the kingdom of God is often referred to as the upside down kingdom. And that is because there are a lot of elements of Christianity and of God's kingdom that are the opposite of what you might expect. So some examples of that would be the last will be first, the poor, will become rich. Weakness is strength. Giving is receiving. You lay down your life to find it. There's an author named Jen Spiegel, and she said, in the upside down kingdom, poured out becomes filled up. Far away becomes closer than your next breath, and mess becomes mission. So the part that really stuck out to me in that whole quote was that poured out becomes filled up. It made me think about some of the things that we do here around church. One of them in particular is Christmas Palooza. Um, this last year we had three nights of Christmas Palooza and Christmas Palooza is an event that we hold for people in our community where we provide toys for families that might not be able to have toys for their kids for whatever reason. Um, and it is a whole big to-do. Like we completely tear down the auditorium, set up tables, get all the toys out here. So we're spending a lot of time during those three days going and collecting toys, labeling toys, getting everything set up. It's, it's a big operation to say the least. And it's happening at one of the busiest times of the year, right? Christmas. So it's happening like right before Christmas time, like 22nd, 23rd, 24th or something like that. So everybody who is here is focusing on Christmas Palooza, but we also have everything else surrounding Christmas on our minds as well. Um, and it could be that Christmas Palooza becomes something that feels draining for the people who do it. You're pouring out a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of like enthusiasm and joy, but it is so cool. Every year, people who serve at Christmas Palooza leave tired, yes, but incredibly filled up. You do not leave this event feeling depleted. You leave feeling like, oh my gosh, I have just done something like 
super significant. And the reason for that is because sometimes when you pour yourself out in God's kingdom, you are filled up. You know that people have found community. You have made a difference. People are potentially going to come to know God because of what you've done. And it just replaces any of those feelings of exhaustion with just this joy of like walking in what God's called us to. Um, it's also pretty similar for people who serve. I know that a lot of people in, in our congregation and the people who are watching online have a place where they serve at church. If you serve somewhere, go ahead and put that in the chat. Shout out your team that you serve in. Um, but serving is also about pouring out to be filled up. I know I work back in B Kids. We have an awesome team back there. It is not like a chill, relaxing time. Like you are teaching kids, you are passing out staff, you are doing crap, you are praying, you are playing, you're doing like all the things. But the people who work back there do not leave feeling like, made it through my week this month. No, you are leaving knowing that like, I have made an impact on the kingdom for generations by teaching this kid that God loves them. So I would just encourage anybody who has not found a place to serve yet, do that. You will, you will be pouring yourself out. There's no way around it. It is a sacrifice of time and of energy, but the impact from that is just, it's something that can't really be explained. You will leave every encounter feeling like I have done something that is significant for the kingdom of God. So just a little example of how poured out is actually filled up. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the word, um, and we're going to see how the upside-down kingdom of God works and how in 1 Peter, there are a lot of really good pictures of how when we're poured out, we're actually being filled up. Let's start with Peter um, 2.18. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this you have been called, and that's something that I would take a minute and underline, for this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So what really stands out to me in that verse is to this you have been called. Christ suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow. This is the kind of life that we've been invited into, the kind that Christ lived. It's not able to be separated from the work that we're doing. Um, it also stood out to me where it says that he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So we're going to dive into those verses now. Peter, as we've learned over the past several weeks, was writing this letter in about AD 65 to persecuted Christians who were in what would be considered modern-day Turkey. Many of the people who he was writing this letter to were household servants, and um, that is different than what would be like a slave in, in that time frame. These were likely well-educated people who held responsible positions in the household. They might have been doctors, teachers, musicians. Um, and when we're reading this, we can pretty closely align that relationship to an employer and an employee. Um, and I'm sure we have all had bosses. You know, it says in here that we are supposed to honor and respect the ones who are good and gentle and also the ones who are unjust. So that's kind of like, you know, some of us have bosses that were like, they are awesome. And some of us have had bosses that's like, you are not awesome. 
When I was in college, I worked for this company where I went around and I taught um, exercise classes to preschoolers, and it really was like pretty a pretty fun job. And my boss was not mean, but she was definitely getting the best out of our um, business relationship. So I was a college student, which meant I made like basically no money, and I lived in DFW Metroplex, which anybody who's familiar with Texas knows, like that is huge. Like it, it can take you like an hour and a half or two hours to get from like one part of the Metroplex to the other. And granted, I wasn't going that far, but I was going long distances within the Metroplex. This um, person who was my boss, I had to travel to different preschool or preschools in the area. I did not get paid for travel time, and I did not get paid for um, gas. So I only got paid for the amount of time that I was actually teaching these classes to the kids. Um, she expected me also to find any new kids who'd come into the preschool to get them to uh, try out the class, and, and I was supposed to write a note to their mom and let them know like, oh, Johnny had so much fun today in our class, please sign him up, because my boss made money for every kid who participated in the class. So she wanted me to be doing that too, but I wasn't getting paid for like any of that time either. I was only getting paid for like when I taught the class. And if a kid happened to sign up, I would get a whole $20 bonus, which at that point I was kind of like, yes, $20 is great. I'm in college, I need this money. Um, but she was making a whole lot of money off of me and she was not paying me very much at all. However, I really did like that job. I enjoyed what I was doing. I found a lot of like joy in it. Um, so I kept trucking and eventually like she gave me some good recommendations and stuff that was beneficial for me in the long run. But I think we can all understand those relationships where it's like, listen, you are getting the better end of the deal boss out of this relationship and I'm probably not being treated equitably. And that's what was happening in some of these instances um, where Peter was talking about. And not to minimize, like there was also like a lot of hostility and persecution that was much more than like they weren't getting paid fairly, like they're being treated really terribly. But we can more um, align our thinking with a boss who's just not treating us you know, correctly. So in this passage, Going back up to the verse, we're gonna look at what God's calling us to do. So it says, but if you, but I'm sorry, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this, you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So looking at that verse, what is it that we're exactly being called to do? It is says that we are being called to do good and suffer for it. Yeah. Yay! No, that really doesn't sound like a super fun thing to do. It kind of sounds like, yikes, that's what we're being called to do. But yes, in the upside down kingdom, that is part of what we're called to do. We do good and we might suffer for it. And that is just the understanding in, in this kingdom. Why is that what we're supposed to do? And the verse also answers that, which is so awesome. It says, because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example to follow. It goes, I'm sorry, it goes on to say, that um, he didn't commit any sins, he didn't revile, he didn't threaten, he just bore our sin so that we might live. And in Philippians, it says that Jesus took on the very nature of a servant. He made himself obedient to death, even death on the cross, and he did that so that we can find salvation. So where this whole thing is going and why, why Peter is giving this direction to a servant is to say, the way that you live 
the way that you lay down your life is going to show your employer, is going to show the people in authority over you, that you value what God is saying and that you are following God's way. Doing that repeatedly is going to get some attention and people are going to wonder, you seem different than this other person. That is going to be indicative of God working in you and that is going to bring about potentially the salvation of people and that's why we are being called to this. Jesus was not looking out for himself. He made himself nothing so that we might live. A lot of people in the world are looking to get power. They're looking to get elevation. They're looking to be the boss, to be the leader. Um, but as misfits, we are really looking for how we can lay down our life so that other people can find Jesus. Christ is our example, and we are entrusting ourselves to him. That was another part of this verse. said that he did this just entrusting himself to God. That's how Jesus was able to lay down his life. So what does that look like for us? Because we're not actually dying on a cross for anyone's sin. We don't have that power. That is what Jesus did once and for all, and it's done, and he's the only way to, to, to God. But how do we live out this reality in our lives? And in Luke, he gave us a really good picture. He said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, do good to those who hate you. Expect nothing in return. Be merciful as your father is merciful. So for that boss who hasn't given you a raise or even like a high five in three years, the team leader who never does their part, the client who thinks you are like on call for them 24 hours, seven days a week, teachers, the principal who doesn't care that you have not gone to the bathroom or had a lunch break in seven hours, we are called to do good to them anyway because of the picture that it shows them of the love of Christ. Um, there is an author, Sarah Bessie, she wrote a book called Jesus Feminist, and what she said is, you cannot be full to the brim with Christ's love and peace without spilling over into the lives of others. We receive goodness and bread, and then, of course, we want to point every other, every other hungry beggar on the road to the source. So we can do this expecting Nothing in return, but knowing that we are entrusted to Jesus. That's kind of hard to remember when you're in the thick of like pouring yourself out. Someone's going to be like, this just hurts and is suffering. And how, like, how do we encourage ourselves in the Lord? The Bible says that David, he, he found ways to encourage himself in the Lord. And that's what we have to be doing when we're in the midst of like a season of pouring out. And these are some verses that just stood out to me as I was thinking about this. Some things I say to myself. You save those who trust in you. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wing. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. You, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. You're a protector for me. So when we are being misfits in the upside down kingdom and we're laying our lives down, we know that it's for a bigger purpose. God is with us and he is using that to draw people unto him. So, Last week, we talked about honoring the emperor, and we talked about crazy Nero, and how he was like literally trying to just destroy all of Christianity. He did not like how the Christians were growing in, in number and in power, and so he was, um, Peter was telling us that we still need to be honoring the emperor. Peter continues this week um, with instruction about submission and authority, so we're going to jump in to Peter's instruction for husbands and wives, we're going to start first with wives, and that's happening in um, chapter three, verses one through four. This is what it says. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word to the conduct of their wives. 
I'm sorry, by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be hidden in the person of the heart. I'm sorry. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in God's sight. So he kicks off with likewise, which means in the same way. So just like how Jesus laid down his life for others, just like how the servant is poured out and obedient to what his employer is telling him to do, wives are being called to the same actions. Um, and <laughs> submission is something that is, you know, a hot button topic in our era. Um, and so I feel like it's really important to explain why what submission is not before we get into how we are supposed to submit. So what submission is not is it's not giving up independent thought. It's not agreeing with everything that your husband says. It's not putting him in the place of Christ over you. It is also not trying to stop bringing him into relationship with Christ if he is not a person who knows Christ. And it is not living in fear. John Piper had a really good quote about what submission, what Christian submission is, and I'm going to read that. It is the disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. It's an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. But the attitude of Christian submission also says, it grieves me when you venture into sinful acts and want to take me with you. You know I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you. On the contrary, I flourish most when I can respond creatively and joyfully to your lead. But I can't follow you into sin as much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage. Christ is my king. That is pretty powerful, and it's a really clear picture of what Peter is trying to tell us about wives being respectful and having pure conduct. So wives, we are supposed to celebrate and affirm our husband's godly leadership. And when our husband is not exhibiting godly leadership, or if you have a husband who is not a Christ follower, who, that is not something that's even on his radar, um, you can still live in a way that speaks volumes to him about God's love. That, that whole quote is not even saying, like, you're going to yell at him and say, like, you're evil and I hate you and everything that you're saying is against God. No, it is a quiet understanding of, like, I can't follow you into this sin. I love you. I want to be in right relationship with you, but I cannot follow you out from under what God is calling me to do. Um, I have a friend who for a long time, she went to church and her husband was not interested in being a part of church at all. Um, for years, she would invite him to come with her to things at church and he just didn't, that, that was not his thing. He was not going to do that. She was very intentional about continuing to bring in other families from their church to their house, um, going to different events where there would be people from church so that her husband was having, growing in relationship with other people who knew God and forming those friendships. And after a long time, like years, he one day was like, I'm gonna go with you to church today. And he came, he decided that he was gonna follow Christ. Um, it took a, a while, like his growth and maturity in Christ was not something that happened like instantly, but she was always encouraging of him when he would be making steps in that direction and not um, constantly like 
bugging him about like, when are you gonna come with me? But making it like an invitation to him. And that was something that it's, it's just so cool to see their marriage now and to see his involvement in the church. And it's really because her pure conduct and her respect for him in that season when he was not following God, took down those barriers for him and he was able to come in and able to form those relationships and find a relationship with Jesus. So that's just an example of that lived out. Um, and I can promise you that was not easy for her. It felt like a pouring out because she wanted to be like, this is really important. Like if you don't do this, like she understands the eternal consequences of like not following Jesus, but she tempered that. She knew like if I blow up at him, it is not going to lead to the outcomes that I'm trying to get for him to salvation of his soul. So she was very intentional about loving him, presenting the gospel in ways that were not necessarily like all in words, but also in her actions. Um, this verse also talks about not adorning yourself with clothing, jewelry, um, you know, all the trappings of beauty that we want to <laughs> sometimes wrap ourselves up in. Um, Roman women competed with each other a lot in the area of fashion. And that's something I feel like as women, we can like understand that. Some, some people are like really into fashion. Um, they put a really huge emphasis on their clothing, their makeup, their, their jewelry. And what Paul is saying in this, I'm sorry, what Peter's saying in this passage is that we should not care so much about our physical appearance as what is happening spiritually and what's happening on the inside and making that beautiful. And he is not saying like, don't wear makeup, don't find cute clothes. Like this is not a call to like being dowdy or anything like that, but it is a call to seeing where your priorities lie and what's really important to you. So growing up, my mom was, a very, very smart and strong person. She was a paralegal at a law firm. She was incredible in court. Like she would have stuff ready for the lawyers before they were like even asking for it. Like she was just in her zone at work. Um, she was not the homemaker type. She was not really into like sewing. Like I remember I needed something sewed, sewn, sewn one time. And she took a hot glue gun and just like hot glued it onto me not onto my skin or anything, but just like, it was like a thing that has to go on a shirt. She just glued it on there real quick. So like, I learned a lot of my, uh, my fashion skills from my mom. That's totally something that I would do. But, um, so she was like, she was not into more of that, like homemaking type stuff. She wasn't really like a cook or anything, but she was like killing it out in the work world. Um, in our denomination, we grew up in church. My mom loved church. She loved God. She loved the women in the church. And our church had this thing called WMs for women. And it was a very creative. It was called Women's Ministry, WM. And my mom <laughs> made up this new branch of, of WMs. Um, it wasn't like she was overthrowing anything. She just had like this little group that she would go eat lunch with and anybody was welcome. They called themselves the WWMs, the Women With Minds. Um, and it was so funny because it was very important to her for women of God to understand like you don't have to not be a strong woman in order to be a person of faith and a woman of faith. And that is kind of what this passage is talking about. It wants us to be women with minds, women with strong minds. Um, there are a lot of people, a lot of women in the Bible, um, Ruth, Rahab, Lydia, Priscilla. I'm doing a Bible study right now um, about the genealogy of Jesus and like some women show up and it's just like so cool to see how, um, how God and how Jesus value 
the role of women in society and in the life of Jesus. That's a side note. If you're ever interested in that, I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, but going back to the strong minds and how that equates to a gentle and quiet spirit. Um, a gentle and quiet spirit is connected to a mind that is disciplined. And a disciplined mind is one that takes every thought captive and makes it obedient to Christ. One of the things I read about this um, when I was doing some research is that it said that um, a gentle and quiet spirit is undisturbed, at ease, and set on Christ, refraining from quarrelsome behavior and confident in Christ. It's a mind that is not striving, a spirit that's not always striving for the next thing, to be the best, to get on top, to do the thing, whatever, to get, to get this and to get that. It's a mind that's just quieted itself. Um, you know that feeling when, you're, when people in your house are at peace and it's like calm in your home? And a lot of times women, that is connected to how we are operating and to how we have disciplined our minds. Um, God's word said that those qualities of having a gentle and quiet spirit, like a disciplined mind, are very precious, unfading, of great worth. Man, I want to be that kind of person who has a mind that is undisturbed, at ease, confident in Christ, where striving has ceased, and I am like confident in who God is calling me to be and the things that he's calling me to do. Um, so what does that look like practically? How do you have a mind that's disciplined in this gentle and quiet spirit? Um, it looks like being really disciplined in spiritual practices. It means taking time to be praying, to be reading God's word, to be worshiping, to be serving. Um, our, we are able to be really seasoned in our responses and in how we are reacting to the people around us when the Holy Spirit is who's governing our mind. And that comes from that time with Jesus. It's holy and sacred. Um, you know, our bodies are going to really age over time, women. Like, you're not going to look like you did when you were 20, when you are 50. And that's okay. That's like what time and happens to humanity. But... When God's word said that, that this beauty, this gentle and quiet spirit is unfading and it is very precious of great worth, it's something that's not going to go away with age. You can continue to grow in this and develop in this and only get better. Okay, husbands, it's your turn now. You get one verse. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny, wives? We got like six or four or six verses or something. The husbands, they get one verse. God's like, I got one thing, men, for you to remember now. Okay, here's what it says. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This one too starts with that L word, likewise. So just like what we said to wives, just like what we said to servants, just like how Jesus laid down his life for us, husbands are laying down their lives also for their wives. The heart of this verse is that men should show honor and respect to their wives, which was a radical idea in Peter's time. Women were very oppressed. They did not have a voice. They could not say, I want to get divorced. They did not have like, their, their um, testimony in a court was like nothing. Like it didn't even matter. Like if a woman saw somebody kill somebody, doesn't even matter. Your voice is not valid here. So they were very, very oppressed. Um, the, the fact that 
that this verse says that women are co-heirs with with their husband in the grace of God is just like also something that would just be revolutionary. Um, Christianity's emphasis on submission to God ahead of a husband was unique. So like a woman is supposed to be submitting to God instead of a husband, which was like not something that would have been um, a common teaching. But the fact that a man and a woman are co-heirs to grace or to co-heirs of anything would have just been like something that was unheard of. So this was a huge step for, um, for Peter to be, to be teaching about. So Michael and I have been married now for 19 years. Um, we have been working on our marriage for all of 19 years. And I can tell you, it's something that is a never ending work. Um, as humans, we are forever fighting the pull of like self and my rights and what I want and what I think is best for me. Um, and it's been really recently that I have tried to be really intentional about um, submitting my will to what Michael says in, in just some different areas of life. Um, and I just wanna tell you there is so much freedom that comes from taking the, <laughs> the guidance of God in that area. Um, when you're correctly submitter, submitting and honoring to each other in marriage, um, it can take away that tension that you feel. And I don't know, husbands and wives, you probably understand this. Sometimes in your house, it is just tense. And you know that, like, you know why it's tense. And you know that you can, you know, continue, like, to throw a match on the thing and it's going to explode and become, like, a really big fight. Or you know that you can take a step back, lower yourself, submit, or if you're the husband, you can know, this must be something that is really important to my wife for some reason. I understand that and I'm gonna honor what her position is and what her thoughts are and take a step back myself. So I would just encourage you, if you are having those instances in your marriage where you're feeling this tension, stop and investigate, like, why is this happening? Does one of you need to be submitting to the other and lowering yourself so that your marriage can thrive. Um, so Michael and I, we are big Ikea furniture shoppers. Well, for a while we were, we haven't had to buy any furniture in a while, but there was a time in our marriage where it was like, we had a lot of Ikea stuff. And if anybody knows about Ikea furniture, it is very, very difficult to put together. And they're like, the directions never have words and they're just pictures and you can't tell what is backwards or forwards. Like, it's just a little difficult. So I always wanted to like help Michael put together the furniture. So it was like team building or something. That's what was in my mind. So the first few times that we tried this, these endeavors together, it would end like really bad because we wouldn't do something right. And, uh, Michael gets pretty frustrated when he's building furniture and is not working. So he would get really irritated and I would get my feelings hurt. And I'm like, why are we like, why are you mad? And he's like, I'm not mad. I'm just, you know, whatever. He's mad at this piece of furniture. But like I was very sensitive and felt like my feelings are hurt. So as our marriages progress, I have found that like one way to avoid tension is for me to just not be in the room when Ikea furniture is being built. And literally that could potentially cause fights before. They would, we would have feelings for a few days after these things because we'd both gotten like hurt and mad at each other. Um, and so there are certain situations where as a married couple, you can just know 
if I will just not engage like this, give some space, give some time, we will not have fights and we will be able to just like be in right relationship with each other. And that was like a very rudimentary example. There are much, much bigger ones. And I know there are situations that are much more complicated and messy than that. But I think there is truth under that, that all of us know what those tension points are. And we can be kind of like working together to figure out like how to get through those in a way where we are united and where we are submitting to one another and honoring each other and not just trying to like kind of keep throwing flames on the fire. So again, most people are trying to get power, to get elevated, to be the boss in marriage. You want to be like the one making the decision. Wife, you know what's best and you want your husband to do da 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 da. Or husband, you know what you need to be doing as far as X, Y, Z and you're not taking the time to listen to wisdom that your wife might be sharing. That's something that comes up in marriage. We're trying to just like make sure our voice is heard and that our rights are, you know, being followed. But as misfits, we're looking for how we can lay our lives down. Where can I humble myself so that other people can know God, it makes my relationship better with Michael and it makes my relationship better with God when I am living in right community with the people around me. Christ is our example. We entrust ourselves to him. We're not fighting for ourselves. We can rest in the fact that God has you. God is covering you. God is providing for you. You don't have to be doing all the striving for yourself. Okay, we're wrapping up this um, passage for this week with 1 Peter 3, 8, and 9. It says, Finally, all of you have a mind of unity, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. So it says, all of you, that means everybody who's a Christian, He's not telling, this letter is to the Christians. So everybody else in the world is not necessarily going to be like all about unity and sympathy and brotherly love and humbling themselves. This is for the Christians. All of us should be doing these things. They are all about lowering ourselves and our own ambitions for the good of the family of faith. And I can't live within in these things and operate in these things if I'm constantly like fighting for myself and thinking that I know the best in every situation says, humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand so that he will exalt you at the proper time. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Again, in the family of faith, we are not striving for ourselves and to get position and power. We are laying our lives down, letting other people be elevated around us. And God, trusting that God will elevate us when it's time and that he is carrying our burdens and that he cares for us. This is a personal call to personal responsibility, just like last week. Um, our faith community can be a safe place and a functional place when everybody is doing this work of lowering themselves and esteeming the other people around them. Um, the folks that Peter was writing this um, verse to or this letter to were living in a really hostile society. They, the, the Christians really needed to be there for each other. Um, because other people were, were not going to be showing them sympathy. So they needed to have that within their community. And um, we all want those kind of friends, right? The friends who are sympathetic to us, who are listening to, listening to what we're talking about, who are providing us with wisdom. And in order for us to have friends like that, we first have to be a friend like that. 
I work with teenagers and with kids and um, they are super quick to call out like every injustice, right, that happens to them. Like if somebody took their toy, if somebody ate their snack, if somebody uh, moved their animal, like they are quick to be like, that person is not a, a nice friend. They are a mean friend because they did X, Y, Z to me. And it's interesting because sometimes those kids are the mean friend, but it's hard for them to see it because they're so busy like calling down on other people. And it's so true with us too. I'm a mean friend sometimes, and you're a mean friend sometimes. And it's really important that we are mindful that we have to be in unity with each other and lowering ourselves and humbling ourselves so that there can be unity in the family of faith. And I know this feels like a really huge ask, um, I don't have the power to do this on my own, and that's why it is critical to be spending time in community with God, just like we talked about earlier. Having that time where we are praying, where we are worshiping, and we are reading God's word and letting that truth just like wash over us and purify us is so important. It's his work and his spirit in us that allows us to be countercultural and allows us to be pouring ourselves out and lowering ourselves when every natural inclination is not to do that. So the, the last part of that verse says, bless others and you will be blessed. And I think that kind of ties so nicely into what we started with, with Christmas Palooza and with serving. When we are pouring ourselves out, there is a blessing that comes from that. Just like Jesus, he poured himself out and what, what came of that? the salvation of our souls. In the same way, when we are pouring ourselves out, we are opening up the opportunity for people to see Jesus in us and for us to have those conversations. They see that we're living in a way that's different from the world around us. Um, Sarah Bessie, the Jesus feminist author said, I want to be outside with the misfits, with the rebels, the dreamers, the second chance givers, the radical grace lavishers, the ones with arms wide open, the courageously vulnerable and the ones rejected as not worthy enough or not right enough. And isn't that all of us? All of us are so desperately in need of grace from God and from each other. And that's what we're being called to do. So as we close today, let's consider how do I use my position and my circumstances to help others find relationship with Jesus? Most people, like we said, are looking to get power. They want to get elevation. They want to be on top. They want to be the authority. But as misfits, we're looking for how we can lay our lives down so that other people can find Jesus. We're looking to pour ourselves out so that we can be filled up with power that can lead to life change for the people who are in our influence. And we need the Spirit to empower us for this work. He is our example, and we can entrust everything about that to him. Let's pray. God, you have put us in our times and our places for a purpose. We are your people and we willingly surrender our will to you. Let us be the workers, husbands, wives, friends who willingly humble ourselves to the greater purpose of all people knowing you. We cannot do this on our own. We need your spirit at work within us to will and act according to your purpose. Every day, let us consider how we can be a blessing to the world around us. We are following your example, Jesus. We're not concerned about power, position, or prominence. We can do this with full confidence, knowing that we're entrusted to you. Every provision, all mercy and grace come from you. 
Empower us with your spirit to make you known as we walk this world that's not our home. Amen.